When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our latest listener questions episode. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today is a man who ran the risk of being cancelled on Twitter this week by admitting he wouldn't mind a round of Premier League fixtures being played abroad. Oh, Graham Rutherford. Oh no, I feel like this is going to end badly for me. They're going to come after me with the pitchforks and, and the fire. This is this will be the end of, uh, of Graham Rutherford, I, th- I fear Ryan, yeah. Uh, okay, there's worse ways to go out, Graham, I could say. But uh, I will say, I was I was quite against this idea, uh, the, the playing a, a round of Premier League fixtures abroad, Graham. You know, mm-hmm. it's tradition. How dare they take a home game away from one of these teams? And I could see lots of problematic issues with it. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, why not? Yeah, I mean, there are absolutely issues with it. I have concerns over the kind of the parity of the league. How how are teams going to give away one home game and still have that structural and competitive integrity of the league season? I do have concerns over that. I would also have concerns over one game leading to two games, leading to three games to, oh, all of a sudden Burnley play their home games in Jacksonville. Uh, I would have concerns over that. But if it was safeguarded as just kind of one round of fixtures per season... Yeah, I don't really have much of an issue with that. If it was, if it was, if it was competitive um, in terms of like maintaining the integrity of the season, I don't have much of an issue with that. There are fans around the world. Let's give them some proper football to watch. I was taken out of the room there by the idea of Burnley and Jacksonville, t- two of the most different <laughs> places I think I've ever visited. Graham, goodness me. Yeah, well, an experiment. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> well, also here with us today, Graham, is a man who hasn't expressed his view on playing Premier League games abroad, but I'm hoping he's going to do that right now. Joe Lowry. Whatever it takes to get Burnley doing a reverse Jacksonville Jaguars, I am all for that. So that is my opinion. Let's make it happen, folks. All right, Joe, what exactly do you mean by reverse Jacksonville Jaguars? Like playing backwards in Florida? <laughs> no, the Jaguars just, when when the NFL was putting games abroad over in England, it felt to me like it was always the Jaguars going to play in Wembley or wherever they're playing. Um, whether that's because of the ownership having ties in England, or I don't know exactly what all the details were. But the Jaguars did play a lot of games abroad, and they're also just not very good. So I think it works on a couple of different levels, Ryan. Well, the NFL does play a lot of games abroad as well, Joe. I think the issue is it's taking maybe taking a game away from a Premier League team or two, this would be. Maybe the idea of Burnley playing, say, Aston Villa in Jacksonville, maybe that's not the biggest draw in the world as well. What would you think, Joe, about maybe the League Cup or the Charity Shield or one of those less important games going abroad as like a, a tester first? What would you think about that? I mean, it's good for the American fans if more games are in the States, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have any issues with that. I feel like I'm not the right person to answer this question. Ryan, I think you are probably the better person to answer this question because I don't have the emotional ties to English soccer to really feel yeah. for the integrity of the game. Because to me, 
yeah, why, why not? Right. Why not? I, I understand. Okay. Maybe it's just a finance, like a, a money grab here. And that's probably true no matter how you spin it. But I'd love to see the community shield in, well, maybe not in Florida, but somewhere in the United States, right? I'd like to see more games. La Liga's thrown out this idea a bunch in the past of having games in the U.S. I think there's opportunities to do that. And from my perspective, it would be fun. From your perspective, though, Ryan, I can imagine it might not line up quite with mine. Wimbledon basically did this already anyway by playing their games in a foreign land, uh, Milton Keynes. All right, Graham, you had to ruin the fun, didn't you? Thank you very much. Uh, By the way, uh, no Taylor Rockwell here today. Uh, He's actually at Tottenham Hotspur this week. They already have a wise, beardy man there, and they thought if they got another one just like him, the team might actually get some sort of identity. I'm not sure if that's working out. But I I do think the Nuno Rockwell partnership. New Rock? What do we think? Like Limp Biscuit and Papa Roach, they, they're they um, sustaining their success, aren't they? Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm not sure uh, how many, if, if those references kind of age us quite a bit. Uh, I don't know how much Joe is, is, they do. is knows, knows about how, <laughs> like, what we're talking about here. But yeah, sure, New Rock, let's go for it. <laughs> Joe, you've heard of Limp Biscuit, right? Yes, I have, but mostly just because I've done this show with you for about a year now, so that, that, that's most <laughs> oh. of the tie-in. <laughs> Oh, I've never felt more old, Joseph. Oh, thank you very much. All right, I think on that note, we should probably get to some listener questions. Why don't we do that? We're going to start off with one from Kenneth Seiden, who says, What is your take on UEFA proposing a salary cap uh, slash luxury tax system? How would this differ from FFP if it is still revenue-based? And the primary way teams got around FFP was by, in quotes, cooking the books. Uh, Graham, there have been reports of an alternate system to FFP being placed as early as next year. Uh, FFP, of course, which regulates spending in relation to turnover. That was brought in 11 years ago. Wow, time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) According to the Times of London, under the planned system, the new system here, clubs in European competition would be limited to spending a fixed percentage of their revenue, possibly 70% of their revenue, on their salary. So any clubs breaching that cap would have to pay a luxury tax under which the equivalent or more of any overspend would go into a pot to be redistributed uh what do we make of this Graham? my initial take here as to how different it is from ffp is it's still an attempt to regulate club spending just dressed up very slightly differently and could probably still have those books cooked should should, uh, should there be a desire to do so yeah, I mean it's it's barely an attempt. For me this this is this is a relaxation of of FFP and that the key way this differs from FFP is that it essentially allows clubs and owners to spend whatever they want. I mean, yes, there will be that kind of that um that 70% cap, but the the luxury tax means that as long as they factor that into their spending, they're they're pretty much allowed to 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 spend what they want and that isn't an allowance in the current FFP regulations so to me this is a, a relaxation of FFP FFP has has pretty much failed in my view I think it was it was brought in there were two sides to it. obviously there was the the way it was publicly sold which was uh, a way to stop clubs essentially going bust and spending beyond their means we had a, a, a period in particularly in English football, it seemed where a number of clubs were, were spending beyond their means. The way that this was sold was to stop that from happening and, and to kind of safeguard the, f- the future of those clubs. However, within the elite, the clubs that really pushed for this and, and pushed it through, it was a way to stop any more clubs crashing the party and, and dividing up the pie and into any more pieces. Uh, and that, that hasn't really worked. You know, we've still got City and PSG outspending everyone. 
and a lot of blurred lines over how they're able to do that. And so I don't think FFP has, has worked. I think the key part of this new proposal that that could see this voted through is the section on how the luxury taxes are collected and distributed around other clubs in the competition that could be popular especially in the the post-covid age when clubs are, are a lot of clubs are struggling even at the top level and these clubs will be looking at how ffp has done nothing as i say has done nothing really to to stop certain clubs outspending everyone else they're looking at City and, and PSG and probably thinking they're on a different level to them anyway we might as well get some money from that and so that could be quite popular that could be a sweetener that actually gets this over the line if, I've to, if I'm to predict how the, the voting might go. Graham I think the problem I see with it is you get teams like Man City who we saw in the All or Nothing documentary saying words to the effect of um, I'd rather spend 40 million on lawyers and pay 30 million in fines to UEFA uh, and I could see clubs tying up in the courts uh, where, uh, trying to avoid uh, distributing their their uh, their That's earnings <laughs> to other teams I could see you know the same kind of issues we've seen with FFP th- those blurred lines between what earnings are I think one one of the issues here we have we have clubs like um, like PSG and like Man City who have sponsors who are owned by their own owners or, or even, even Juventus with Jeep. And that's the kind of thing where it gets a bit murky with how much a team has earned. And there's, there's you know, s- several complicated ways the accounts can be done for these teams. So I still see the same problems, even if we do have the benefit here of that luxury tax being distributed to other teams, if it ever does happen, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. That would be a nightmare scenario, wouldn't it? If we we completely changed FFP, got rid of it, imposed this luxury tax system, and then the club started challenging the luxury tax so that no one actually ends up paying that, in which case it's just a completely, un, pretty much an unregulated system. So yeah, I totally take your point there. It would need, they would still need a level of enforcement from UEFA, which they haven't really demonstrated so far. And when they have enforced it, They've either backed down or the Court for Arbitration for Sport has kind of sided on, on the club. So basically the legislation would need to be absolutely rock solid. It would maybe also need all the clubs to be on board from the start and some kind of binding agreement that they just couldn't get out of it at all. If they were able to do that, then I could I could see it working to a certain extent. However, you're, you're, I just don't think you're ever going to stop the cities, PSGs, the Chelsea's from kind of outspending beyond their means and they, they are still doing that these these clubs are still doing that even Chelsea who you know have have a Bramvich and have been around for a while and have pretty strong revenue at this point they are they're still spending beyond the natural size of that club I just don't see how you're gonna stop that well, Joe what are your thoughts on this obviously this kind of concept is common in American sports where there are closed league systems there's collective bargaining there's revenue stipulated and collected and distributed centrally by the leagues themselves. It seems it doesn't quite sit with the free market, with a transfer fee system. It's uh, I've got a quote here actually from the uh, General Secretary of International Union of Footballers, FIFPRO, who's Jonas Bear Hoffman, who says the salary cap system is philosophically and economically incompatible with the transfer fee system. And it does seem, for the reasons without label, it's, it could be quite hard to monitor. But also there's there's issues of it could be viewed as anti-competition. It could be it, it kind of goes against the principles of the free market, whereas in the American system where it is closed, as I say, and it's a bit more whisper it communist, Joe. <laughs> it, this is an interesting one to me. This proposal is interesting because, as you're saying, Ryan, it does have some American 
esque ties here, right? This is very the luxury tax is huge in the NBA and in Major League Baseball specifically. And MLS has a salary cap and a, a number of other. I mean, American sports leagues do as well. This is an interesting one because I think it ties into folks envying, to an extent, envying Major League Soccer's ability to control costs. And, and there's a lot of different levels to this because you have the elite of the elite oil clubs who maybe don't really care as much about this. But you also have a lot of teams across the world who would probably like to have their spending regulated in some way on a level playing field to ensure that they're being more fiscally responsible. So it's interesting to me in that way because – Different people around soccer have been making comments about that, specifically Liga MX uh, officials and, and I believe their commissioner or president or whatever that, that position is called, has mentioned things about that in relation to Major League Soccer in the past. I'm not sure, though, and this goes to what you're saying, Graham, that this would really change how that top 1% operate, right? Would a luxury tax have stopped PSG from signing Messi? I mean, almost certainly not, right? I mean, I don't see it necessarily making that big of an impact. And if anything, I could see this idea of the the salary cap being based in a revenue percentage. I could see it theoretically hurting slightly smaller clubs, right? I know this this proposal, I believe, is only applying to teams in European competitions in UEFA. But still, there's a big range between the top and the bottom of teams entering the Champions League or entering the Europa League. And having that be a percentage of their revenue imagine would hurt the smaller clubs because they don't have the same revenue pool to draw from. So I know some of those things still happen now, but it seems like maybe some of those differences in classes between clubs could be emphasized and reinforced with a system like this. So I don't, I don't know if this is a good idea. I think a lot of it depends on how it's executed and how FIFA, uh, how UEFA, excuse me, actually enforces it. It is fascinating to see this proposal popping up and to see this idea that is more inherently American in at least American sportsy popping up other places, but I don't know that this is going to cut it guys. A good point you raised there, Joe, about to whom these rules would apply, because lest we forget, uh, we talk about FFP in the context of the biggest clubs in the world, but it's, uh, you know, one of the primary reasons it's set up is to stop, you know, Derby counties and Portsmouth and those kind of teams uh, overspending their revenue as well. So it's not, right. it's not just for the European elite as well. So that's, uh, and it's important to note this wouldn't apply to them uh, if, if it were to replace FFP, which might take away some kind of safeguard for smaller teams. Graham, I have, I'm reading that the European Super League RIP, uh, one of its uh, concepts was a 55% salary cap. So we're talking 70 to 80% in this new uh, fangled FFP replacement. The European Super League would have limited those teams to 55%, which seems like a lot of those teams would have said, nah, not going to do that. Perhaps, yeah, but there are a lot of teams, you know, I know, for instance, Bayern Munich have been very public. I know they weren't involved in the Super Club, but they are an elite level club. Sorry, the Super League, but they're an elite level club. But they have been very vocal on how they feel that some form of salary cap would be beneficial. Real Madrid and Barcelona, I know Real Madrid or um, Perez has, has, you know, he was obviously the figurehead of the Super League. So I I assume that if this was in their proposal, then he was in favour. Barcelona are very close to Real Madrid at the moment. And they're in financial ruin, so maybe they wouldn't have been against it. So if you if you actually eliminate club by club who would have be against a salary cap, you're maybe talking, um, you know, the top four in the Premier League and and PSG. Other than that, you know, maybe maybe this a salary cap is quite a a, a popular idea. Is it popular on this podcast, though, Graham? What do you think? Um, I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm always wary of. I always think it's a bit strange when people get really angry about what football players are getting paid. A lot of these guys are 
working class guys who have come from nothing and I actually think it's quite good that they get paid their market value and that these billionaire owners are maybe not hoarding the cash and they are giving it to the guys in the pitch who are actually doing the work and who are the ones with the marketability so I would always want these these players these guys to 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 get their market worth but if it stops clubs which are so important to communities and their institutions and they mean a lot to fans. If it stops them going bust, then maybe a compromise somewhere in the middle where players still get paid, are still able to get paid a lot of money, but clubs aren't, you know, spending themselves into the ground. Maybe that would be a good thing. It would indeed, yeah. And I, I think I'm, I don't like it in the context of these bigger teams as well because I think if you have the free market and you have mega multi-billion dollar teams like this and they do what they like, then to suddenly limit them uh, with these kind of caps, I think is a bit anti-competition and a bit against the spirit of this uh, catalyst nonsense that we all like, frankly, Graham. And uh, maybe yeah, we should... And, have- and, and, and if, if we're all truthful with, our, with ourselves, we do quite enjoy seeing Messi, Neymar and Mbappe all playing on the same team and the Galacticos uh, all being on the same team and, you know, United having such a brilliant attack. It's all very experimental we all kind of want to see it if we're all being uh, truthful i think indeed graham indeed thank you very much kenneth that question uh here's one from Shreyas romani hey Shreyas, what is the situation our stress with soccer broadcast rights in countries outside the u.s i need to invest in three to four streaming services but i feel very spoiled here being able to watch games from pretty much any major european north american or south american league and during the last international window you could watch any world cup qualifier outside of south america with subscriptions to espn plus and paramount plus i have a feeling that other countries aren't quite as lucky um gents i will suggest uh Shreyas is right in saying that the u.s are very 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 spoiled when it comes to the uh broadcast rights uh, of games that we can watch in the u.s uh just alone graham with nbc showing every single premier league game all 380 of them uh you need your standard cable subscription to something like fubo or or a, a more standard cable package and your peacock subscription for five bucks a month and that's Pretty good value for the Premier League alone, Graham. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to TV coverage of soccer, the United States, and I've referenced this on this podcast before, the United States is better served than pretty much any other country on earth. I haven't come uh, come across a country that has better uh, coverage of the game on, on, on TV. And I'm frequently quite jealous of the amount of soccer that you guys have at your your fingertips. First things to say is in the question there, um, ESPN Plus and Paramount Plus are mentioned. There is nothing like that. In the UK, there isn't any streaming service with with rights from a number of leagues and competitions all in one place. Obviously, we do have streaming, but it is just streaming of the live broadcast that's on Sky or BT or anything like that. There's not there's not kind of like a Netflix of soccer like maybe ESPN Plus is. We don't have that. There's far greater fragmentation of rights in the UK. So Premier League rights are spread across Sky Sports, BT Sport, and now Amazon Prime as well. They've got they've got Premier League rights. Champs League and Europa League are on BT Sport. But qualifiers are on Premier Sports, while Serie A is also on Premier Sports and La Liga is on its own channel, La Liga TV and all these different, these subscriptions are not cheap. You know, Sky is, um, depending on what kind of package you get, Sky is between £25 and £30 a month. Um, BT is, I think I pay £15 a month for BT now, or maybe even more than that. It might be it might be £20 a month. It seems to go up a lot. Premier Sports is £10 a month. It is a fortune to watch football. And the other thing to say is we don't have the breadth of offering that you have in the US. So not only do we not have the number of leagues, 
but we don't have the same number of, of matches broadcast. You know, in a, in a weekend where there's 10 Premier League fixtures played, only five are broadcast live. Nothing is allowed to be broadcast between three and five on a Saturday due to a TV blackout. And that's agreed by all clubs and the FA who, um, whether you agree with it or not, they have this belief that that, that, um, that is better for getting fans to go to particularly lower league games. You know, they, they have this idea that if my United are on TV at three o'clock, that maybe fans who would go to a lower league game would stay home and watch that rather than go and support their own team. There's some research on, on there's there's uh, some contradictory research on that and and a little bit of debate but that's that that's the belief and uh, all this changed during the covid pandemic when every match was shown live on tv due to fans not being allowed in the stands and i am quite surprised that fans clubs and particularly the broadcasters have gone so willingly back to the old model for this season you'll remember the i was talking about the Cristiano ronaldo's second debut for manchester united that was a three o'clock game on a saturday was not on british tv which was quite incredible. So yes, absolutely, um, other countries are not as lucky as the US when it comes to soccer coverage, and one of those countries is the United Kingdom. Yep, very much inclined to agree with that, Graham. And as much as uh, the US fans can complain about you know uh, having to pay extra for Peacock for, for five bucks a month, uh, you're hammering home there that three different subscription services from three different companies you need to watch the Premier League alone in the UK, the host nation of that league. Uh, I also ran some numbers for Italy, where I am at the moment. So if you want to get Sky Sports Italia, um, which in which you can watch all 380 Serie A games. Uh, that's 32 euros a month, so something like 40 dollars a month. Uh, so you get all of Serie A, but you only get select Premier League, Bundesliga, and League One. You only get up to five Premier League games a week for that. So you can't even watch all of the Premier League in Italy, for example. If you want to watch the Champions League in Italy, um, Amazon Prime have one match a week. Uh, you, you're paying. It's, it's quite cheap prime here. It's like 30 or 40 euros a year. But then to watch the rest of it, you need Media Set, who have the rights here, which is eight euros a month. So you're paying sort of around 60 bucks, uh, rounding it up a month to watch your soccer here. And you don't get anywhere near as much as you get in the US. And something I used to say, Joe, is that, you know, the, the, the US coverage is the envy of the world because there's so much of it and it was so cheap. I wouldn't say it's terribly cheap anymore because there's all these different services you need your espn plus your paramount be in sports you, you need basically a, a cable package as well as all these streaming packages and there's a lot going on there and you're probably spending 50 60 bucks a month if you watch everything so it's kind of got some parity with europe and elsewhere but i don't think joe that you can beat the amount of games that you can watch in the united states aren't you lucky Oh, I'm I'm so lucky, guys, and and I'm uniquely lucky in terms of the people on this show right now. One thing that I think is especially especially beneficial about how soccer is broadcast in the U.S. is the amount of lower league games that we can watch, and that's not as relevant to a lot of people right now. And by the time that USL League One and USL Championship are relevant, maybe it'll be a different discussion, and ESPN Plus will cost double what it costs now. I don't know, but I think it is awesome that I can turn on ESPN plus and watch any with the exception of the few nationally televised uh, USL games. I can turn on ESPN plus and watch any USL game. I can watch Phoenix rising. I can watch whoever, right? It's something that is not done in a lot of other places. And we've talked about that on the show before, right? Ryan, you and Graham have both discussed the challenges of watching streaming or, or, or getting the broadcast for lower league games in the United Kingdom. That's not something that happens in a lot of places. So there are other countries. Like Canada, I did a lot of research into Canada for this question. 
They have Media Pro, which is one soccer that does CONCACAF games, tournaments, uh, Canadian Premier League, the Voyager's Cup, which is their, their domestic cup competition. They have Bell Media, which is TSN that does MLS and Leagues Cup and La Liga and some national team games. They have, uh, DAZN. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that actually, but they have the Premier League That's and they right, have, yeah. okay, perfect. Thanks, Graham. And they have Champions League and Sportsnet does Bundesliga and looks like Fubo. You can get Fubo to find Syria. There's some difficulties there. So there are, I mean, you can watch games. If you're in any of these countries, you can watch games. You can find ways to do that. But it is pretty straightforward here in the United States and the depth, not just, not just the breadth, like, like I can watch games all across the world, but I can also go down into the pyramid here in the United States. That's something that I'm especially grateful for. Joe, talking about um, US domestic broadcast of, of soccer, do you remember the old MLS Live service before that was kind of folded yeah. into ESPN Plus? So yeah. that to me, I, I actually don't know whether that was popular with fans or not, but to me, so MLS were actually really good in that they unlocked my, uh, my, um, I, what's the, uh, IS, IS address? The, the IP. internet address. Yeah. They unlocked that for me so I could get that in the UK. And watching games through MLS Live was like the future for me. (laughs) The fact that I know that the TV games are blocked on MLS Live or were blocked on MLS Live, but the fact that I could watch any any game in the league live as as it was happening all on this streaming service, like that is just completely unheard of. Even now, like there's not, that doesn't exist. I mean, I follow, I guess in the... In English lower leagues, but Ryan was telling us a few weeks ago of his his opinion of iFollow. <laughs> yeah, MLS Live was as like was like something I'd never seen before. And as I say, like particularly in Scottish football, we don't have anything like that at all. Like that is a that was a brilliant, brilliant service, and and that's the kind of thing that makes me feel we're like so far behind the US in terms of uh, broadcasting. That I I am not living in the US at the moment, but I still have a Fubo subscription. I still have ESPN Plus with the Hulu Disney package. I still have Paramount Plus, uh, and I have ExpressVPN, so you can put all those uh, uh, elements together. And I'm still watching my, myself all of the US soccer coverage. And there's a reason I'm not doing the domestic Italian package. Uh, for one, I don't speak Italian, but also <laughs> because uh, the coverage in the US is so 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 good, and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, for one, and also Joe, just to pick up on something there, you said. Dazone. I was really shocked when I learned it was pronounced Dazone because it's Darzen, isn't it? I took a real risk, guys. <laughs> I thought in the back of my head that that's what it was called. I went for it. I should have prepped it beforehand, but Graham came in clutch, so we're good. Yeah. Dazone. Why is it Dazone? I don't understand. Is this a young people thing, Graham? So, you know, I don't know, but I quite like them. Like, they, they, you know, they're going to buy BT, Ryan. Have you seen yeah, that story I recently? That, yeah. So, they're going to get into the Premier League, like English domestic Premier League rights. And, and they're the one of the companies that I see what I was just talking about with MLS Live and streaming and so on. Like, they're the company that I think could actually change that. And, and they could do, maybe I'm going slightly over the top, but the way that Sky kind of changed football in the early 90s, I think there's potential for Dazon to do that in England now if they really, really go go after it. So, yeah, we, we better all learn how to pronounce that because I think they're sticking around. <laughs> they will be. Did. I think they're, Graham, may even be competing for US rights because, lest we forget, I think we mentioned this on the recent podcast, NBC's deal, their six-year deal, is up at the end of, I think it's at the start of next season or the end of this season. Um, and uh, it could be Amazon. It could be one of a, a numerous companies who show the Premier League in the US. And uh, NBC do a very, very good job. So we'll see what happens next there. But uh, thank you very much for the question there. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back with your listener questions. Here's one from John Adams hyphen, not that one. Okay. Recently, <laughs> the player I'm scouting, Shayon Harrison, was on trial with Doncaster Rovers, says John. When that trial came to an end without a contract offer, Harrison indicated he may be willing to sign a non-contract agreement. John asks, what is a non-contract agreement? Is this like an unpaid soccer internship? Does it ever lead to a full team contract um gents this one i i dug in pretty deep on this and i asked around a few people and i didn't get a concrete answer on what a non-contract agreement is i did uh, i was uh, led to believe it is different to a pre-contract agreement um graham did you get anywhere with this one yeah a, a little bit i mean i'll be honest i hadn't really heard of a non-contract agreement before now i assumed the question was maybe talking about pre-contract agreements as you as you referenced there where a player will essentially give a club a a, a verbal agreement as it tends to be that's given a, a bit more of an official stamp that they will sign a contract with another club usually a few months before the end of their current contract with with a, with another club but um I actually, yeah, I also asked around because I felt like this might be something that my club, Sterling Albion, might might engage in, and, and I was correct. It was a term that they had they had known about. So it's actually something that I am familiar with as a Sterling Albion fan who has who actually have a number of players on non contract agreements. I just didn't know that's what they were called. And so a non contract agreement, as I was told by the Sterling Albion chairman, is essentially a contract where you're not paying the player a weekly or a monthly salary. Instead their payment comes from bonuses. So that could be an appearance bonus or a goal bonus or a bonus for winning a competition or finishing in a particular position in the league. So for obvious reasons, this isn't common at all in the top leagues because they have the money to pay all their players proper salaries, but it's something that is done quite a lot, um, pretty much in all of the semi-pro leagues. So that's that's kind of the bottom two leagues in Scotland, the Scottish League 2, which is where Sterling Albion playing, and, and, and I guess maybe Doncaster Rovers, uh, Shane Harrison, if he's playing there, then it's, it's something that they do as well. So it's something that, that um, I guess it, it's it's... I wouldn't say it's an unpaid soccer internship because these guys, if they're playing, they are getting paid. But if they're not playing, they're not getting paid. And I'm presuming, Graham, that's fascinating, by the way. Thanks for digging into that. Is it, I'm presuming it's not legally binding. It's a, it's just representing a commitment, like a, a signal of intent. Because yeah. um, in the case of Sean Harrison, he didn't actually end up with Doncaster. He's gone to Morecambe. Uh, only played one game for AFC Wimbledon um, this year as well. Um, just thought I'd add that in. But it's... <laughs> it's um, it, it it's not exactly ironclad, is it? No, I mean it tends to be that these players can just uh, come and go as 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 they please. Essentially, if they get a better offer somewhere else, the one thing that that is a little bit um, more official is that these players need to be registered with the the league at some point. At, um, at least with Sterling Albion, anyway, with the the SPFL here. So 
that's a slight complication. You know, I, I, there's there's limitations on how many clubs you can play for within the same league pyramid. But say you had a guy who was a bit part player for Stirling Albion, only made a couple of appearances, was registered with the SPFL, but then went to play in the Highland League or the East of Scotland League or the West of Scotland League in, in, in Scotland. That that would be possible because it's a completely different league structure and and um, and so on. So yes, it's it's definitely a little bit more fluid having someone on a non-contract agreement. Oh, that's very interesting. And just to be uh, just to give the definition of a pre-contract agreement, which is something we we were kind of, or certainly I was confusing it with to start off with. A pre-contract is an agreement between a player and a club committing to transfer the player's registration once their contract at their current club has expired. It's kind of like a promise ring, I guess. Um, and that was that came along after the Bosman ruling of nineteen. <laughs> 95 uh, pre-contracts can be signed up to six months before the expiry of um, of current contracts that's pretty fascinating joe do you have any more to add on this i kind of feel like i have a non-contract agreement with my streaming services with my fubu me ESPN plus because i can leave when i like <laughs> no ryan i don't really have anything else to add graham hit the nail on the head and even shined a light on some things that i hadn't found so go graham and go us i guess for nailing this question yep Agreed. John Adams, <laughs> okay. not that one. I hope that one uh, answered your question. Thank you very much for that indeed. Matthew Webber, gents, has been in touch. Here we go. The USA Woo. and Scotland merge countries uh, in this theoretical. What is your starting lineup, and by how much does this team beat England? First off, Graham, if the USA and Scotland emerge, imagine the fried food opportunities. <laughs> 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 that's true I mean Scotland isn't so keen on being part of the United Kingdom anymore so I would I would be up for becoming an American state we already have a flag and a local government and a Denny's and lots of five guys so you know we're ready to become part of the United States those are the only criteria you're good yeah you're in you've got a Denny's <laughs> yeah well the thing is COVID killed it off but I'm still telling people that we have a Denny's yeah <laughs> Oh, and Harry Maguire's um, letting us all know that we've got Taco Bell in the UK as well. So it's all it's all happening, Graham. It's all happening. But as as for the question, the USA and Scotland merging countries, we're merging lineups here. Did you have anything approaching a lineup? I'll, I'm, I'm going to let you and Joe hash this one out, and then I'm going to come in for the final part about beating England. But go ahead if you've got something. Here. <laughs> yeah, so I have I have some ideas. One of let's start off with the goalkeeper, um, Joe. I wanted to men- talk to you about this one because. While Craig Gordon, I think, is a decent level goalkeeper, he, you know, he's, he's not playing at a high level in Europe, whereas you guys have, while he might not be first choice, Zach Steffen, who is at Manchester City, but of course he hasn't been really first choice for the States, at least over the summer either. So can you shine a bit of a, a light on who our goalkeeper should be? Yeah. So I was, I was planning on coming in ready to fight for Matt Turner. And then you just kind of seeded this one. I, hey, we're, we're one nation now, Graham. I shouldn't say fight or, or seed, <laughs> but I think Matt Turner is the best option here. Um, he's the best shot. Stopper in the U.S. pool, I, I think he would do very well stopping shots at a very high level in Europe. He's a guy I think makes a who, who makes a lot of sense in this spot as long as there's no giant of Scottish goalkeeper that he's keeping out. No, not really. I mean, Craig Gordon <laughs> a, a while ago was the most expensive British goalkeeper in, in history at the time, but yeah, he's he, he's still decent. But yeah, we'll 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 let you guys have this one, and I'll also let you have the right back in this team because Perfect. Scotland don't have a right back. <laughs> uh, so Sergino Sergino Dest, who is a Barcelona player who is playing at a slightly higher level than Stephen O'Donnell, who is a Motherwell player who is our first choice right back. However, I am going to take left back yep. in this team with yep. Andy Robertson. Yeah, so you should so so you should have left back and and I'm going to propose Graham as we're building this on the fly. 
I propose that we play a three at the back shape and we use wing backs. And I know that center backs aren't necessarily Scotland's strongest position and, and maybe they're not the U.S.'s either. But I think we can, I think we can do this. Really, I want this because I want to play Robertson and Tierney both on the left, and I just want to steal that tactic straight from Steve Clark. So are you interested in us forming a back three slash back five with Turner and goal, Sergio Dest on the right, Andy Robertson on the left, those are the two wing backs, and then Kieran Tierney as that left-sided center back, and he can do all those overlapping, underlapping things that he does? Yeah, so I think having Tierney and Robertson in the same team is is definitely the way we should go. They have a really good relationship. The only thing that there were two things that prevented me from going with that that system was it forces us into some difficult decisions further up the pitch, mm. where America American the American team sorry have some better wide forwards than we do, and difficulty of how to fit them in, and also Scotland. In America, maybe you have a different opinion to me, but it seems like we're a little bit light on centre-backs. We need to find two more centre-backs to play alongside Tierney in that back three. So have you got any suggestions? I do. So if we're flying ahead and we're going ahead with this back three, John Brooks, Wolfsburg centre-back, seems to make sense for that middle centre-back spot. Not the most mobile guy, and that's been his game for a long time, but great passer of the ball. You can have him anchoring that back three, at least in possession, as that deep-lying pivot along the back line. And then Miles Robinson is a guy who I'd slot in at right center back. He's got mobility to cover for Brooks. Tierney can do some of that as well when he's not marauding forward. He's got mobility, Miles Robinson does, to cover for Dest. He's also a decent passer of the ball, not the most comfortable under pressure. But I think I think if you've got Brooks in the middle, Tierney on the left, and Robinson on the right... I, I genuinely think that back three would work with Robertson way out on the left and Dest way out on the right. Okay, fair enough. We can go with that. But <laughs> okay. one, of, one, of, one of the positions in, uh, further up the field that I'm just not willing to concede at all, and we're going to have a problem, you're not going to be allowed into our Denny's, Joe, if you're <laughs> not I know it's coming. I know it's coming. Billy Gilmore <laughs> in this team. He's got to be in. Graham, he's got to be in. He's he's one of I would first of all I'd never take him away from you. I I would never make a lineup with you <laughs> that didn't have Bill Gilmore in it. I think I think he makes a lot of sense to help anchor the midfield, Graham. Okay, and America have some pretty good options who can play alongside him. Am, am I right in saying that in that midfield? Who who are you going for? Yeah, the only player that I really feel passionately that that should be involved in this central midfield is Tyler Adams. I think Tyler Adams and Billy Gilmore would make a fun double pivot in this what's now becoming a 5-2-3 or 3-4-3 shape. There's no real difference there. I think Adams has some of the bite to cover for Gilmore. Gilmore's got way more quality on the ball. They could have the perfect combination of skill sets to form a double pivot as long as we can agree on a front three and there's no other central midfielders that you wanted to slide in there. Well, I'm surprised you uh, you maybe haven't mentioned uh, a certain Juventus midfielder who's been in in a, in a lot of headlines, but you're not so hot on him at the moment. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Weston McKinney's a talented player. I just I don't think I don't think we need to force him in here. There are only three locks that I have for the U.S. men's national team in this lineup. We've mentioned one. I've still got two to come uh, in the forward line, but Adams is really the only midfielder that I felt passionately needed to be in the squad if we want any chance of uh, humbling England. Okay, so I I went for a, a a midfield three of Gilmore, McKinney, and Adams. Okay, the one of my one of my reasons I did that was I really would quite like to get Pulisic and Gio Reyna into the same team, and then also have a central striker. So yeah. I, I was struggling to do that when we were going with the back three, and that's one of the the the, the things that kind of factored into my decision. So I've kind of given the game away there a little bit. I would have Reyna and Pulisic in this team, but I'm struggling to get them in. No, no, we so we can do it, Graham, because we've got the back five, right? We've got going from right to left. We've got Dest and then Miles Robinson, John Brooks, Kieran and Tierney, and Andy Robertson. So that's our back line with Matt Turner in goal. 
role. Then we've got the double pivot of Billy Gilmore and Tyler Adams. So we've still got the front three. We can be in this Tuchel-esque sort okay. of 3-4-3 three, cool. three shape with – because Pulisic and, and Gio Reyna are my two locks in the forward line. I think I'm right there with you. They've got to be in this team. The challenge for me, Graham, was deciding on a striker because the U.S. Yeah. does not have a lot of elite striker options, and we both watch Scotland at the Euros. I don't think they have a ton of options up top either. No. I, I could go any number of ways here and be totally fine because I don't think there's a lot of gap between some of these okay. players. So I am going to propose Che Adams because I think he is play- he's, he's in pretty good form for Southampton. He's a first-team player in the Premier League for a, for a pretty decent team. He's also really good at facilitating others. And I think when you have attackers like Reyna and Pulisic who are as good as they are and carry goal threat, particularly you know Pulisic with, with uh, finding the back of the net, I think having someone like Adams alongside him is, is, is probably going to be quite quite valuable. I, I, you're right though we, there's not really a like a lock out of any of them but I think Adams for me just kind of edges it I'm totally fine with that so Ryan we've got our 3-4-3 shape we're coming for England uh are we gonna are we gonna do it uh you've had your fun in games I'd say gents um but I'm not convinced you're gonna do it I, you're asking if this team can beat uh, European Championship finalists and World Cup semi-finalists England. Well, hold, hold on, hold on, Ryan. <laughs> the last time Scotland and England played at a competi- in a competitive game, can you remind me what happened in that, in that game? And also, yes, just for yes, good measure, <laughs> and, it, and for good measure, the US and England, the last time they played in a competitive game as well. So now we're combining those two nations. <laughs> You're combining two nations that didn't beat England in those last two games, Graham. Yes, continue. But England didn't win either, so you know. If, <laughs> I, 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 my logic is sound here, and, and you know it. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely don't think that this team as good. It does sound pretty tantalising, but I don't see it beating yeah, England. Maybe yeah. you know, maybe it could on, on its day, Joe. But what, what are you thinking? No, there's no chance here, right? This is a fun exercise, and I do think we've made. I don't know, Graham, are you with me? I think we made both teams better here. I think we made the U.S. men's national team better. I think we we probably made yeah. Scotland better yeah. too. And so it's fun in that way, but there's a big gap still between England and either one of these countries, even when we combine and take Scotland in as the 51st state with their fried food and their Denny's. I just, I don't think there's <laughs> enough talent here to do it quite yet. All right, I guess the discussion is, if it's if it's not the 51st state, maybe we replace a state with Scotland. Should we take out Florida? <laughs> what do you think? Oh, I mean, Scot- <laughs> Scottish people tend to have quite an affinity with Florida, myself included. Yeah. I don't know if I should admit that. So, uh, yeah, that, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Florida and Scotland should create their own country. Maybe that's actually the union that should happen. <laughs> I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it, Graham. Uh, very disparate climates, I would uh, I would warn you, though, yeah. of course. Um, yeah, that was a very fun exercise. Matthew Weber, thank you very much for that question. Keep your questions coming, by the way. If you go to the Total Soccer Show website, you can submit them there. We'll be back right after this break with some more. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back taking your listener questions. Here's one from Brian Hansen. Hey, Brian Guy. When did match officials in England professionalise? And was there anything in particular that precipitated it? Are there any of the big five leagues where match officials are not full-time professionals? And do you think it matters? Uh, I'll take a punt here first, gents. The Premier League and the... Uh, Professional Game Match Officials Limited, the PG Mole Group, was formed in 2001. So that's when um, the Premier League and the top uh, and the Championship both uh, got professional referees. Uh, before then, they were 
part-time. And uh, Graham, I don't know if you remember a referee called David Ellery, who was kind of the big referee in the early days of the Premier League. He was a geography teacher at Harrow School, which okay. is quite a fancy school in, in the south of England. I was looking into him because I, I watched him ref many, many games. The Beckham goal from the halfway line at Selhurst Park, where I was present, um, he was the ref in that game. He was the ref in the Ryan Giggs game, uh, the FA Cup semi-final, where he scored oh, and yeah. showed everyone his lovely hairy chest. He was <laughs> unable to referee at the 1998 World Cup because he had school commitments. He couldn't get the time off from his geography job oh. to come and do the World Cup. So that's, um, that's the way things used to be. Um, and across the Premier League, the EFL and the FA, uh, PGMOL have 65 professional referees in their select group who are full-time match officials. The Premier League and the Champions League, Championship excuse me, are the two leagues which have pros um, and they, they have semi-professional uh, referees in League 1 and League 2. Um, one thing I noted, Graham, was they earn about £70,000, about $95,000 per year and referees can earn a lot more in other leagues. Uh, I have some notes on some of those other leagues, but I've been talking for too long, Graham. Pick up. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, um, as a fan of, of, of soccer in a country where there aren't professional referees, uh, so Scotland is kind of still stuck in the dark ages. We are not in those. I, when I was looking through um, some of the big five leagues, it seems like they are, they are all professional. Is that correct, Ryan? Is well, that the information that you have in your that research? Is, that is actually not the information I have, Graham. Okay, I go one, ahead. I have one professional league that does not have uh, fully full-time professional referees. They're all paid, but and we're talking full-time professionals. The Bundesliga. Um, There are 46 individuals on the DFB's panels of Bundesliga referees. They're not all full-time. They are paid per match. And I found an example of one. Daniel Siebert, who is a Bundesliga referee, he was a ref in three Euro 2020 games. He works as a teacher in Berlin as well. So not full-time. And that was the only example of a top-five league I could find, Graham, that didn't have full-time pros. And um, in terms of that money, 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 La Liga, I found, in the Pro and Segunda division, they have professional referees. Uh, they can earn nearly 300,000 euros, nearly $350,000 a year Cha-ching. from that gig. Wowzers. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a toss-up whether Mathieu Delhaus values that salary more or just the sweet, sweet attention. <laughs> <laughs> he, he loves it both equally. <laughs> Indeed. And Joe, I did find out about Serie A referees. Uh, they are paid by the Italian FA and sometimes by Juventus too. <laughs> Oh, that's that's well done on your end there, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, these guys, some of these guys are making bank, and even the the referees that aren't making quite as much money. I mean, the Premier League still pays a decent wage, but not not La Liga money by any stretch. I think a, a lot of the reasoning behind professionalizing referees it helps legitimize the game, right? That's a big part. Graham, you're mentioning that with your experience in Scotland, so it helps legitimize the game and provide another job opportunity and and helps solidify that role, right? Which is incredibly important to soccer and it's incredibly challenging as well. So those players, those, those referees, excuse me, absolutely deserve to be financially compensated for that on a consistent basis. I think it makes all the sense in the world to professionalize referees in as many leagues as possible in as many leagues as it makes fiscal sense to do so. 
Yeah, my initial um, reaction, Joe, to that question of does it matter if they're professional was, no, it doesn't matter. When the Premier League started, they were oh, all part-time. Does. It was absolutely fine. They were still making refereeing decisions. But the more I thought about it, at that point you make, Joe, about it, it legitimizing the process, you're quite right about that. And I think that's a very important point. But also, Graham, the amount of um, training that referees have to do now, yeah. things with VAR and, and that kind of thing coming in, there's a lot more to it these days. So it, it makes sense that they're professional Graham yeah and I also think um, it has a, a big impact on just the standard of refereeing to be perfectly honest I know everyone likes to think their league has the worst referees but the difference between the officiating in Scottish football and in the Premier League is quite frankly vast barely a game goes by in Scotland without some sort of contentious decision and again I know the Premier League has that but honestly it's not to the same extent that it is in Scotland that's down to that's also down to factors like the the TV coverage, so we don't have the same number of cameras that, that that broadcast our games, and so it means people are kind of having to to work out what's happening from grainy zoom in pictures of certain incidents, and also a lack of VR. We don't have VR in Scottish football, but the basic quality of refereeing is is also a factor. So basically, what I'm saying is, pay your referees what they deserve, so that they can commit their full working life to being referees and this might not be much of a shot but their refereeing will get better as a result of them being able to commit more time to it is there a downside to the professionalization graham when you've got celebrity referees becoming celebrities in some ways like mike dean who becomes almost a parody of himself at times yeah is it is that kind of takes away from the referee being he shouldn't be the spot he shouldn't be the center of attention in the game should he and he shouldn't be the person whose name we know he should be an anonymous sort of um uh, judge of the game rather than a spectacle in his own right yeah there was a there was a tweet bouncing around not so long ago that that was like quote this with your seat your guilty pleasure about football the thing that everyone else hates but you secretly love and i think celebrity referees might be might be one of mine <laughs> uh i think it's one of these things that if if your club has a game refereed by a celebrity referee it's something that you would hate but as i say as a sterling albion fan we don't really have celebrity referees in in scottish league too so as a complete neutral of premier league and champs league football i i do quite enjoy enjoy it when uh, I look at who the referee is and it's Mike Dean or Matthew Lahoz that just adds to my enjoyment I have to admit <laughs> good stuff Joe anything more to add on referees and their celebrity status before we move on to the next question nothing else from me Graham I'm, I'm kind of down for your guilty pleasure here if we could I don't know maybe we can schedule a guys <laughs> night and just eat popcorn and watch Mike Dean highlights I'm, I'm kind of down Oh yeah, that sounds like the the best offer I've ever had of a date, Joe. To be honest, <laughs> that's depressing, Graham. Uh, yeah, well, no, it's just the standard of the offer. Like nothing can compare to that. <laughs> well, I know, Graham. I'm getting you for your next birthday present a cameo from Mike Dean. How's that oh, sound? Too good. Too good. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I have to mention before we stop talking about celebrity referees, and I said I did say that there aren't celebrity referees in Scotland, and that's not strictly true, despite the fact we only have part team referees. Because interestingly enough. The leader of the Scottish Conservative Party is an SPFL linesman, Douglas Ross, and he is obviously a very public figure and he misses government uh, meetings and votes and so on because he is also a Champions League linesman as well. So that is something that is a point of discussion in Scottish football is Douglas <laughs> Ross as a linesman in, in, in the SPFL here. Hang on, Graham. We, uh, David Ellery couldn't go to the World Cup because he had a geography lesson, but you're letting, <laughs> you're letting your politicians not attend important things to be a linesman in the Champions League. What does that say about yeah. your country? 
And and not just politicians, like really, really prominent, like the most prominent Scottish Conservative is missing stuff like that to go and referee games. But to be honest, you know, sitting in Holyrood voting on uh, on political stuff or being at the Camp Nou or the Allianz Arena, yeah, I, I think I might make the same choice. <laughs> well, if there's one less Conservative, I'm not going to finish that thought, Graham. I'm going to move on to the next <laughs> question. Uh, Michael Pena is asking, do soccer clubs fire managers too soon? What about MLS? Given existing contracts, time it takes to develop players, learn tactics, it just seems clubs are too trigger happy and not letting the coaches develop. Um, Joe, interested to get your thoughts on this one. I think my... my uh, a quick fire answer to this one is yes sometimes the managers are fired too soon but often a manager is the biggest and quickest problem for a club to fix so it's the obvious choice if you're going to try and make a u-turn on a team or at least it's the most visible sign of change right chopping a manager i i think i think this 100 percent depends on the situation right regardless of whether we're talking about major league soccer or another league around the world communicating tactics and developing players, all that stuff takes time. But, I mean, a lot of the best coaches are ones who can do things quickly. So there are situations where I think it makes sense to to move on from a coach. Those things happen all the time. But I do think that clubs firing coaches, I think they do that a lot as a way of half-heartedly fixing the problem. Like, I, I assume we've all spent some time pulling weeds in our lives, right? It's when you pull the weed, but you really only get the top part off and there's still the root underneath. You haven't really fixed the problem, but it looks like you have at least for you know a few weeks until the weed grows back and you get another rain or whatever. I think clubs do that all the time with coaches. They cut the coach, they move on, they fire him or her or, her or whoever, and that's their way of addressing the problem. Cincinnati. For example, this is a Major League Soccer example, but I, I, this happens everywhere. FC Cincinnati just fired their coach, Yap Stam, after I did MLS Corner on Monday. So that's that's cool. Good timing. They just fired Yap Stam earlier this week. Was Yap Stam the problem for Cincinnati, their manager? Maybe a, a small part of that problem. Maybe maybe 30, 40, 50% of the problem. But I bet it's not the <laughs> real deep-lying issue, right? Cincinnati are bad. They were bad before Stam came. They're going to be bad still even now that he's gone. So a lot of times I think coaches are fired too quickly because clubs just want an easy out and don't really want to take responsibility and look at themselves to figure out what the real issues are. But in some cases, I think there are legitimate reasons to get rid of coaches. So again, it is a case-by-case basis kind of thing. Did uh, did FC Cincinnati really fire Yap Sam or did they just fire another bald man? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah, you're right, Graham. That's actually what happened. Not Yap Sam. He's still lurking somewhere in their training facility, maybe in the dumpster behind the facility. <laughs> it does seem, Joe, that firing MLS managers is a bit in vogue at the moment, though. Is it? Is it oh, yeah. becoming more common to to fire hastily fire MLS managers? I don't. I don't necessarily think it's becoming more common. It just has happened a lot this season. I think there have been. Six coaches fired, if I'm remembering correctly. It's happened a decent amount. Lucha Gonzalez, who we did talk about briefly last week, was fired by Dallas. And, and they haven't had great results under Lucci this season or really any of the previous seasons. They have made it into the playoffs in back-to-back years. But, I mean, is he the real problem? Is he the reason why Dallas aren't winning games at the rate of... Seattle or Sporting Kansas City? No, I don't think so. I think there's there's reasons as to why that's happening that have to do with recruitment, that have to do with what the club is willing to spend on the first team roster and, and the spend they spend on that versus academy players. It, it, there's so much context here and coaches are just one part of that. So I don't necessarily think as a general rule, clubs fire coaches too soon in Major League Soccer, but there are certainly situations where that stuff happens and there are situations where coaches who are mediocre are, are left around for far too long. Graham, your thoughts on this question. I take the point that, you know, you can have to let 
the systems develop, players develop, learning tactics, and so on and so forth. But there are circumstances where firing a manager uh, quite soon and being quite ruthless is successful. And Chelsea are probably the biggest, um, uh, the most guilty party of that, often very ruthless in, but successful. You think about Lampard to Tuchel or Mourinho to Conte via Gus Hiddink for a little while. They, they, chop and change a lot but it's it's always a catalyst for success or most of the time it is it seems yeah i mean the thing for soccer clubs as you referenced there is that the influence of a manager is just so much greater than anyone else at the club at least in terms of the results on 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 the pitch so you can't really afford to have much fallow time to to let a coach grow um i, I was thinking about how we did how we think about managers and how we think about them as as developing kind of figures and 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 Solskjaer made me think a little bit about this because over the course of his minority tenure I think it is probably the case that that he has improved and we don't often think about how coaches actually in, improve um obviously we think about that all the time with players we talk about it often you know this player's improved this this player's developed in this but managers aren't really thought about or talked about in in that same way but even with even in the case of case of Solskjaer He's had to achieve results in the short term to kind of give himself a chance in the long term. And so, as, as I say, to kind of circle back round, the, the influence of a manager is just so great. And how many times, countless times, where we've seen a, a managerial change and then instantly the team on the pitch is completely different. And I just think that it, that is... That's the reason, you know, it's a, it's a job unlike any other in soccer. It's not really something that's relatable to the real world either. You know, in terms of if you had a boss and you fired a boss, you would probably have some level of, of uh, continuity. And in soccer, that isn't always the case. You know, the managers have a lot of freedom to come in and impose their own ideas just instantly from the day that they come in. So... It's it's a very strange job, uh, not a very secure job. I can't imagine it's it's good for for uh, your the color of your hair. You know, a lot of grey haired managers out there, and um, it's a tricky one to answer this question because I think it's just a case by case basis. Some managers are fired a little bit too soon. Equally, I think some managers are given a little bit too long, and you can see that they're not going to turn it around. So, as I say, it's a case by case thing. Well, Sam Allardyce wouldn't have it any other way, Graham. I think um, <laughs> in terms of those who aren't. Perhaps fired quickly enough. Are you are you pointing your finger at Norwegian in Manchester there? Perhaps. Um, maybe. I mean, we're getting to that point with Solskjaer, aren't we? Um, I've been a bit a bit of a defender of Solskjaer, but yes, perhaps. Actually, I also I also think I would maybe point more vigorously towards Nuno Espirito Santo, just because I get the sense that he's not going to turn things around, even if he if the results haven't that he's not there's not as big a sample size but you just sometimes you just get a feeling with a manager yeah. and I have that feeling with Nuno well that's another point I suppose Graham we do accuse teams of firing managers too quickly but in the case of someone like Nuno coming in this season in the Premier League it's often the cliche to give him till Christmas but let's face it Nuno's going to get fired it might not be this week but it might yep. it's probably going to be in a month or two so why not rip the band-aid off and do it now what's the damage in doing that I think it's just uh, to to kind of save face, and I, and I guess maybe it would make it more difficult to sometimes to hire a replacement. You know, if you're the sort of club that's given a manager two to three months to actually impose their ideas, like that, that might actually make it difficult to find someone to to come in and take that job. But I I, I do agree. Like sometimes there are managers and jobs where you just know it's not going to work and, and it does feel like they're just kind of treading water until an acceptable time, a socially uh, a socially acceptable time for them to make a decision. And I do feel like Spurs are kind of already in that cycle with Nuno. 
Joe, I'm going off on a tangent on this question. You're a learned man who knows his tactics. Would managerial, would being a manager uh, interest you at one point in your life or is it too cutthroat? What do you think? Uh, it's a little cutthroat. I've, I've thought about trying to at least get some coaching badges and I, I do think I'd like to do that at some point. The, they're just really, really expensive right now, at least. Um, it, it is an interesting job. It, it's so results driven in a lot of cases. You're not necessarily having all of the resources you need to succeed. It is a tricky business. It's not, it's not, not something I'd be interested in doing, but I think there's a, a really long way to go before I'd be qualified to do anything like that. Yeah. Bit less cutthroat to faff around on a podcast. Anyway. <laughs> Taylor's actually here, just waiting to chop one of us. So <laughs> the sword of Damocles hangs over us all, Joseph. <laughs> uh, one more question on this episode from Brian Avery, who asks or who says, "In the entire history of the U.S. men's national team, how many players have been on clubs that were elite?" at the time. And Brian says he would define an elite club as one that would consistently be expected to advance out of the average Champions League group. See a Sheriff Tiraspol's of this world, I suppose. Uh, but you're, uh, but he says we're welcome to decide your own definition of elite. I think first and foremost, Joe, we can say that is it fair to say that this current crop of USMNT players it is the most, the elitist, the elitist of the, uh, of the elite in terms of the history of this program with the likes of Pulis McKenney, uh, Rayner, Tyler Adams. I don't know. I don't know where we're drawing the elite line here, but you know, Sergino Des, Zach Steffen, lots of players who certainly play for top top uh, European sides. And then you've got your Brian Reynolds at Roma, your Sebastian Sotos, Brendan Aronsons, uh, Matt Miazga. Technically, is gets a check from Chelsea, I suppose, at some point. Um, it, it, it seems like we're in a good spot with this program in terms of elite players, right, Joe? Yeah, this was an interesting way to look at development or or at least to look at trends in the US men's national team player pool because there's a there's a high concentration of players at this elite level now who actually play and, and make an impact for those teams. Zach Steffen, not in that particular category. A couple others as well that you just mentioned, Ryan, not really in that category either. But I think there's more players doing that stuff now, and there's going to be more coming over from Major League Soccer soon. Caden Clark signed a pre-contract or signed a contract with Leipzig and then was loaned back to the New York Red Bulls in Major League Soccer. He's going to be headed over there after the MLS season is done. You'd have to imagine that Brendan Aronson will likely move to Leipzig at some point down the line as well. So there's two more guys. Pepe's going to move to a, a strong team at some point in the near future as well. The list is is going to go on and on. So the trend is real. Answering this question was a, a bit tricky because there's a, not only a lot of different ways to define elite, there's also a lot of different ways to define on, as ridiculous as that sounds, because one player that I, I don't know if he really fits in this category right now is Chris Richards. He played for Bayern Munich and, and it has gone on loan now twice to Hoffenheim, who technically has been a part of that team, but not really playing for them. And there's some similar examples throughout history. Landon Donovan with, with Bayern Munich uh, on loan there briefly near 2010. There's, there's a few other guys as well that were on teams, but never really made any impact with them. Uh, so I don't know. There's some nuance here, guys, I guess. Yeah, and I think one of those players is also Gucci Onwenu, uh, Joe, who was at AC Milan. Uh, didn't make any appearances, but he did make an impact on Zlatan Ibrahimovic when they had a fight. 
<laughs> yeah, you've got Gooch. You have, I mean, there, I'll, I'll run through a little list of players that I think will roughly fit into this category. You've got Tim Howard when he was with Manchester United. Landon Donovan, I mentioned with Munich, but also with Bayer Leverkusen. That team was solid when he was there. Demarcus Beasley with PSV. They were, they were good at that time. Uh, Johan Karofsky with Borussia Dortmund. Jonathan Spector with Manchester United, barely playing for them. You've got Frankie Hayduk, who was on uh, the Bayer Leverkusen team that made it to the Champions League final. Brad Friedel with Liverpool. Uh, and and I, then there's a bunch of others, like in the youth team category. Gideon Zalalem was one that came to mind with Arsenal. I had to reach out to a group chat for a lot of these names, folks, by the way. So thank you to that chat for coming in clutch and helping us out on this one. So there are names in the past, but again, a higher concentration of names now relative to what we've seen in the past. I think, Joe, you've covered most of the names that I would have thought to cover in terms of elite players on the program um, prior to this current crop. Um, Michael Bradley, maybe, for for, for Roma, I'd I'd add on there. And I was tempted to add Clint Dempsey for his Tottenham um, role, but I don't think they'd even get out of their Super League group um, (laughs) at this point. Graham, did you get anything else? It's pretty much been been covered. I think Dempsey was is maybe the one people maybe forget how good he was for for a spell. Maybe American fans don't, but I think Premier League fans do forget how good he was. And there was a period where he was going. To, there was kind of a bit of a tug of war for him between Spurs and Liverpool, and and that was a that was a bit of a, a transfer saga. So I'm definitely having Clint Dempsey in there. Um, when I was going through the names, I think I'm just kind of reiterating what reiterating what's been said. The majority of those elite level players are active players right now, and not just active players, but young players for for the U.S. men's national team. So that has to be a good sign for American soccer that that so many of the best ever that the country has produced are of the current crop. And I think I think it's interesting to to dig into why this is happening. We don't have time to really do that, but a couple reasons I thought of the logical place to go is yeah, what what what's the reason behind this development a couple reasons number one is american men's soccer is more on the map now than it's ever been right we were talking about broadcasting rights earlier and that's a much different situation but soccer is growing in the u.s and i think that has a big impact on the eyes or where the eyes of a lot of these top european teams are going for talent Uh, i've had folks tell me that Every young American player in Major League Soccer is being scouted, right? You can't, you can't come up to Major League Soccer now without top European teams knowing about you, without Bayern Munich knowing about you, without Serie A teams knowing about you. That just doesn't happen anymore. And that's much different than it's been in the past. And then reason number two that I've got is player development is more professional and widespread now than it's ever been in the U.S. So it's a more structured system, which can also have a better effect on producing players. There's more pathways now than there have been in the past. So I really only see this trend continuing, and I really only see more and more of these young American players going and testing themselves at the highest level of this game. Another reason, Joe, is we've learned that there's now a Denny's in Europe and Scotland, and maybe there's some <laughs> home comforts for the U.S. players coming over across uh, the pond. Yeah, as soon as everybody learns about the fried pizza thing, Scotland is going to be the home of every budding American soccer player. CCV and Ian Harks, are, it's not going to stop with them, folks. It's going to be real. <laughs> they are trailblazers, Joe, indeed. I think that just about wraps up our listener questions show. Thank you very much to everybody who submitted a question. And of course, thank you very much to our intrepid host, Joe Lowry. Thank you, sir. You got it, Ryan. And Graham Rusman, thank you very much. Thank you for introducing the idea of a Scottish Denny's. I'm going to Google Maps that thing as soon as we finish. <laughs> no problem at all, right? And listener, thank you very much. We'll be back soon. Bye!
Slash it.